0: Casey Cardinia Libraries would like to acknowledge the traditional owners of the lands on which this podcast was recorded. We wish to pay our respects to their elders, past, present and emerging and to any Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples listening.
1: And we are back for 2022 with another exciting year at Book Matters where we chat to people who write books and read books from here at Australia and all over the world. So sit back ...and get set for some great listening and reading recommendations.
2: Today at Book Matters, we welcome two phenomenal Australian authors... First up, Courtney speaks with Solari Gentle about her new literary adventure novel, The Woman in the Library, which examines the complicated nature of friendship and how words can turn into deadly weapons. Then Janine speaks to debut author Neela Janaki Ramanan about her compelling and illuminating psychological thriller novel, The Registrar, which delves into the human experience of both surgeon-in-training and the medical system. We hope you enjoy! Solari Gentle is a woman of many talents. She started her academic career studying astrophysics, then moved on to law, which she practiced for 10 years before leaping into the life of a published author. She is a serial hobbyist who has learned to weld, pregnancy test cows, and create gardens in the style of Babylon. Solari is an acclaimed award winning author of the historical crime Roland Sinclair mysteries, as well as the YA fantasy adventure series The Hero Trilogy. Her standalone novel, Crossing the Lines, won the Ned Kelly Award for Best Crime Novel and was shortlisted for the David Award. In 2022, Solari returns once again with her new novel, The Woman in the Library, a mind-bending murder mystery and literary masterpiece. Welcome to Book Matters, Solari. Well, thank you very much for having me, Courtney. It's a pleasure to have you. I've read the book. I loved it. I have a million questions. Um, But before we get to discussing the book, I wanted to ask about your path to becoming a writer because, as I said in in the intro, you you started with dreams of being astrophysicist. You then became a lawyer before you became a writer full-time. How has that influenced you as a writer?
3: Well, look, in a lot of ways. The wonderful thing about... Uh, writing as a profession or or being a writer is that everything you did before every thought you had every experience every person you met everything you overheard is all material Um, so there's no wasted time Um, I I had a meandering path to, to realizing I wanted to to write but it just meant that I had a a serious bank of material built up behind me by the time I finally decided to put pen to paper, and you know, I was I was just typical, I guess, of a lot of people. There, there are there are some people who are, you know, born knowing they want to write, who have that yeah. epiphany early. Um, there's other people uh, like myself who are just aware that there's something they should be doing, but are not quite sure what. And uh, I suppose my my life was a a long path to trying to figure out what it was I should be doing and that's uh, where the astrophysics the law and all the hobbies came in. Uh, It was this um, instinctive um, desire to find where where I fitted what what my purpose was and it wasn't until I started to make things up and, and write novels that I realised that, uh, you know, I was breathing properly.
2: Oh, that's that's lovely. It's just the way you describe it. It's like it's, yeah, gives you life, gives you joy. And it's always good to feel joy in the job that you do. So that's that's wonderful. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, so your new novel, The Woman in the Library, is a fantastic read. And it's, it's an interesting book. Um, I'm going to leave it up to you to tell the audience what's the novel about and where did you get the inspiration to write it?
3: Uh, sure. Look, uh, the, the Woman in the uh, Library has an unusual structure. It's essentially a novel within a, a novel folded into the pages of a correspondence. Um, it's a bunch we, of nesting uh, dolls. It is, it is. Yes. And uh, it's, it, it's it's got several layers or flaws even, Um the, the, the top floor is how the novel <laughs> opens. It's it's a letter. It opens with a letter addressed, Dear Hannah. Uh, the addre- the letter is written by a, a character we, we come to know by the sign-off as Leo. And Leo is apparently a, a writer set in Boston. He's writing to Hannah, who is an established writer who lives in Australia. And um, in the beginning, Leo is everything that any writer could wish for. In a, writer, in a researcher and a correspondent and a colleague, he's, he's warm and he's encouraging and he's so enthusiastic about her work, he's even willing to do research. Yeah. But as the novel progresses and we see more of Leo's letters and we see one of them at the end of each chapter, uh, I think the reader becomes a little bit unsettled about Leo's motives uh, and, and whether he is actually darker than he appears at first. Um, but the other part of the novel is the the story that Hannah herself is writing in response to the research and the advice that Leo sends her, and she's writing a novel set uh, around a young woman called Winifred Freddie, who is in Boston uh, to write uh, her very worthy first book under the auspice of a, a prestigious uh, scholarship. She's sitting in the Boston Public Library trying to start and basically mind-doodling and watching the people around her as you do, uh, procrastinating a little bit, when suddenly a a shattering scream rings out through the reading room of the Boston Public Library and everybody stops everything they're doing because they know instinctively something terrible has happened. But when a search is conducted, there's nothing. There's no body. There's no reason for the scream. It's almost as if it came from nowhere disappeared into nowhere but of course it didn't it's, it's and that's all I'm going to say about no
2: you don't want to give too much away and speaking of I know you talked about Hannah's uh, uh, writing a character who has a scholarship, and she's writing. Her, Freddie is writing her first book. But you also won the Copyright Co- Agency's Cultural
3: Fund Fellowship to write the Woman in the Library. Is that correct? It, it was. It's. I mean, like it was the first first time I've ever won anything like this. And certainly, you know, it was interesting because it was the first time I'd ever uh, been paid or or got some income for a book before I wrote it. Yeah. Um, and uh, I was a little bit afraid that that would stop be a problem because you know part of the the joy of writing the way I do is there's no obligation so Mm. I start into a story and I go my own way and see what happens I have no plot or structure uh, because I'm a pantser um, and I just I just let the uh, story develop organically Um, and part of I suppose part of the freedom to do that is that I haven't sold the book yet so there yep. is no legal reason I have to deliver it. Um, but once I uh, was awarded the Copyright Agency Grant, then suddenly uh, there was a reason why I had to deliver this book and it had to be written. Um, so I was a little bit concerned that having that over me would, would interfere with my process, but it, luckily it didn't seem to. So uh, the book still was finalised and finished and, and submitted. So, were there any
2: restrictions around the scholar the fellowship that you know you had to write a fiction? It had to be mystery, or it had to be a certain length, or was it you? You just had to write a book? No,
3: no, no. no. It was you. This uh with the with the scholarship, you pitch what you're writing, yeah. Uh, or the the fellowship, and uh, so I pitched the woman in the library. So I hadn't I I had an idea of where this book was coming from, and I, and you know you asked me before where the where the inspiration came mm. the inspiration came because I was writing another book that was set in Boston it was one of the Roland Sinclair novels yeah. uh, but of course I've never been to Boston in my life <laughs> and at the time I, I had no opportunity to go to Boston um, so the way I did it is I, I have a friend uh, who is an American writer Larry Vincent and he happened to be in Boston at that time writing his own novel or he, it was actually uh, The Theft of Privilege is a non-fiction book. So he was there yep. researching it at Boston Public Library. Um, and I, I emailed Larry and I uh, said to him, you know, do you mind if I pick your brain while you're in Boston so that I can – uh, write this rolly book, and of course, in he's a you know he's a very generous colleague, and of course, he said no problems. You know, yeah. I can look up things for you, and I can find things for you. the uh, The issue arose mainly because Larry's a better researcher than I am, so he was looking into things that I wouldn't even think of. So not only was he answering my questions, he was sending me maps and menus, recommendations for where my characters may eat, um, weather reports. Then he started sending me photographs of sidewalks so I could see how the snow piled up on them in the winter and then there was a murder about two blocks from where he was staying and he thought Solari's a crime writer she might be really interested in what an American crime scene looks like and so he took himself off down to the crime scene he took footage of it after the body had been removed but he took footage of this crime scene and I'm in Australia I get this email I opened the movie file attached and it's footage of a crime scene oh okay (laughs) my thoughts exactly my husband happened to be standing behind me and he said gosh I hope Larry's not killing people so he can send you research (laughs) and (laughs) I'm not sure he wasn't but I thought gee that's a really interesting idea for a novel so that's that's where the the really the spark for the woman in the library came from. So I finished the Roland Sinclair novel, and then yep. I saw that uh, that applications for the copyright agency fellowship uh, were open. So I just submitted the idea. Mm. I didn't really know. I think I said in the thing, I don't know how I'm going to actually bring this together, but I have this notion <laughs> of, yes. of this writer <laughs> writing to a, a researcher who may not be all that he seems. And and the story that she writes, uh, this according to his advice. And I'm I'm not entirely sure how I'm going to pull it all together, but this is my idea. And uh, the copyright agency luckily was willing to go with me on the idea. And, and we uh, thank them for that. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> and so uh, and so the story came out then. But you know, part of the part of the problem for panthers, I suppose, is always going to be that. Uh, putting in for a, a grant or a fellowship is that we don't actually know what's going to happen in the story yeah. until we've written it <laughs> and, uh, and so actually coming up with a synopsis or a pitch uh, is a difficult thing in the beginning.
2: Your style of writing is probably more Freddie's style in that you get on the bus and you just follow the story oh, yeah. where it leads. Yep I, I, I love
3: that. Yeah, look, I think I'm even more unstructured than Freddie. I'm chasing the bus. Oh, okay. <laughs> hopping on any bus and switching between. So she at least has a route in mind. Um, yep. I I have no idea. I'm, I'm very much that, you know, first thing that passes on, I grab. So maybe you, I'm hitchhiking more than catching a bus. Okay. <laughs> but certainly I'm on Freddie's end of the spectrum. I yep. just let it all happen.
2: Cool. So you talked about the the structure of the book and how you've got you've got the two parallel stories. So you've got Hannah's narrative told by I, pre, I interpreted Leo's as emails, but you wrote them as letters.
3: Well, um, oh, none no, oh, of the emails, but are Yeah, they are emails because she's yeah. getting them very quickly. Okay, um, yeah. I call them letters because I am old-fashioned. Yeah. I think you know an email is a letter sent by sent electronically. Yes, yeah. <laughs> so, no, that's
2: a. <laughs> um so
3: why yeah sorry what,
2: what what was you thinking around structuring the book that way with your, your sort of your two parallel stories side by side one in the more traditional fictional style and the other written basically as as letters emails from a fan
3: i i i really like the idea of giving readers an insight into how the story is developed into how this fiction um, is created. So, you know, the, the essence of a book is that the the reader agrees to suspend disbelief and pretend that they believe what's going on is actually going on. And the writer agrees to pretend that the reader pret- I- this believes that w- what's going on is actually going on. The woman in the library actually puts that out, you know, gets rid of that. It says, you know, yeah. we know that is a story. Freddie's story is a story. Um, So I'm showing the reader all the gears. It's like one of those watches where you can see all the mechanics, Mm. uh, the workings of the clock. So I'm agreeing to show the reader that. But the challenge then in the book is to still have them go with Freddie's story, to still have them believe and care. Uh, even though they are reminded constantly through Leo's letters that this is a story. And the way that happens, I think, is because so much of Hannah is woven into Freddie's story. So (laughs) as much as it is Freddie's story, it is also a reflection of who Hannah is in the upper level. You don't actually hear from Hannah directly. You only see what she writes. And I did that on purpose because, for me, you can truly tell who a writer is by looking at their work. Yeah. Um, looking at who they cast as heroes and villains, what they talk about, what matters to them, what they think is important. And in, in a lot of ways it's a more honest depiction of who we are as writers than what we, what we are willing to tell people and what our Twitter accounts or our, our mm. Facebook say about us. Um, we put our, our true souls and ourselves into, into our work.
2: Yeah and I would say to anyone who goes to read the book because I think I'm going to have to go back because I kept expecting to to get a response from Hannah either via email or some communication for her that was not her manuscript so I think I need to go back and really focus on trying to hear Hannah through Freddie's narrative because um, I don't think I focused enough on trying to hear Hannah um, when I was reading that section of the book um, mm. and so I feel like there was bits of Hannah I missed
3: yeah there might have been or there might not the bits of Hannah are are Freddie and arcane mm. and Mar- marigold and 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 wit the way they relate to each other the way uh the way their friendship forms the way that their, their, their banter and their um and and the and the way they sort of suspect or don't suspect or their loyalty mm. that's all Hannah yeah. Um, the way she chooses and the way she resists Leo's uh, advice yes. is also Hannah. Mm, um, so all those, uh, all those sort of things which I think probably seep in rather than scream, here I am, I'm Hannah. It's subtle. So, yeah. So yeah. So I think you probably have picked up on Hannah and you probably could describe her um at the this at the end of the novel without ever consciously thinking i'm i'm looking to define mm. who this writer is
2: and i guess the other thing about that side of it leo's leo side of it is it's quite a feat that you've managed to write an entire plot With just really short one-sided emails. Was that challenging or?
3: No, not at all. It's, you know, it's how people communicate nowadays, these, uh, these email streams. And I correspond with a lot of people. I I correspond with a lot of readers. If readers write to me, I respond. Sometimes that turns into a long correspondence. Um, And it has, often turned into a long correspondence when I'm writing to older men. Uh, There's, uh, especially with the Roland Sinclair series, there's a lot of um, support for the series among men in their 90s. And uh, (laughs) And they, they tend to write letters. They, they're they great correspondents. So yeah. They'll write to me about the books they're reading or about my books. And they'll write to me about other books they're reading and about their lives in general and what they remember of the 30s. And so there are several of them whom I have never met, but I have an idea of who they are as people just from these from these yep. letters i think that for me came quite naturally and certainly i was writing to larry this whole time about about my books yes. uh, so that kind of feedback loop made me realize that you can actually pick up so much in in just a couple of letters the wonderful thing mm-hmm. about the the email or the letter form is people get straight to the point yes people they talk about the weather for 20 minutes before they say it. <laughs> Well, <laughs> When people are typing they get straight to the point. <laughs> it It is very very true and I really I
2: think at the start I, I found that aspect of the story kind of annoying because as you said it kept pulling me out of the fiction and reminding me this is fiction this is not real but yeah. by the end of it I was really enjoying just like all the little tidbits that Leo said about you know it's a sweater not a jumper yeah. you know those sort of things and it was kind of a peek behind the curtain as a reader to see what it's like for a writer writing a book.
3: I think there's also a point in a point in the book where where readers do have that annoyance of being pulled out, and then yeah. then their ability to fall into a story just surpasses being pulled out. Yeah, yeah, we yeah. know it's a story, but that's okay. We're gonna <laughs> uh, we're going okay. to there. We're going to get worked up. We're going to get scared, even though we're constantly being reminded by Leo that it's a story. Yeah, um, and I love that about human beings. I mean, that our ability to actually mm. um, to get involved with a book is an extraordinary thing because we all know we're reading fiction, but we yes. cry, we we get worked up, we get scared, where our, our emotions are are so amenable to something mm. we know is a work of fiction. I know
2: and I, I, I love the books you know they sort of they can mirror your own character but they can also mirror other people and I feel like people do we learn and we learn to empathize through characters that we meet through the pages of books so I'm 100% with you on that one.
3: <laughs> yeah no I I agree with that I agree with that completely it's one of the the reasons I, I have sons I've always said to them no no read you know Netflix is great but read is. Yeah turns you into a a more empathetic person it does yeah Yeah. absolutely you know forget about all the academic stuff just read because you learn to care
2: there there is no bad book yeah there's no bad reading there's books that we don't like and then other people love them so and all reading is good reading indeed that's the no. motto
3: you know, look like the occasional manual <laughs> <laughs> on how to put a piece of IKEA furniture together I wouldn't recommend no
2: I, I I think my mother who is constantly telling me to read the instruction manual whenever I get something new would disagree yes. on that <laughs> but then she's the one I ring to say mom I can't put this together that or my sister <laughs> yeah um so then the other side of of the book is obviously Hannah's manuscript which is narrated by Freddie yeah I'm a librarian so I do have to ask why you set the scene of a murder in a
3: library well look there there is this lovely um there's a lovely cozy mirror with the body in the library which was Agatha Christie's yes um and it you know, the the thing about the, the body in the library, it was a body that was in the library that wasn't killed in the library that shouldn't have been there. Mm-hmm. And I'm writing exactly the opposite. I'm writing a body that should be in the library, but it wasn't there. And <laughs> the mystery, yep. why wasn't it there <laughs> um, in the beginning? Um, so I think it was that notion of a library. I was, I was writing a story within a story mm. with correspondence and libraries are the the depositories and the guardians of stories and so it seemed natural that this yeah. is where, where the the Russian nesting dolls would terminate <laughs>
2: <laughs> it it's very true because as I was reading and this might be my thought because I'm a librarian I, I spend you know a good chunk of my life in a library I'm like this book couldn't be set anywhere else like you could not get these four unique individual characters to meet in any other setting it would only work in a library
3: Absolutely, and it just sort of um, there, there, there is that. Uh, it, it just it. I don't think I even thought about it. It was so natural. Yeah. Of course, it would open in the library, and it yes. opened in the Boston Public because you know I was corresponding with Larry when this idea came through, and he was working in the Boston Public. Yeah. <laughs> and and, uh, and so it all seemed to uh, to evolve very naturally. I don't know that there was ever a moment when I considered anywhere else. No. Reading room of the Boston Public Library,
2: and I, I did have to Google the Reading Room of the Boston Public Library just to see what was so fascinating about the roof.
3: Yes, <laughs> it is gorgeous. It, it give them that <laughs> magnificent. Well, recently, I was just in the State Library of Victoria. I love that building, and that also has a magnificent ceiling. Yep. Yes, um, you know you could also spend a lot of time staring up in the in the, in the State Library of Victoria. So yeah, I, I do. I do love that libraries uh, are often such, I mean, this, you know, state libraries and the big, the big publics are often such monumental um, sort of testaments to human aspiration and architectural magnificence. And so they should be, because mm. they house the most important things. And that is yeah. you know, our, our archive of stories in which, you know, human, human passion and human vision and human, um, human goals and love and um, emotions and are all all contained there. Yeah, um, it, it seems appropriate that uh, they should be housed in the most magnificent buildings.
2: Yeah, absolutely. And so through that plot um, with Freddie's narrative, it is a murder mystery. Um, and the great thing about murder mysteries is it gets our little inner detective to come out. But you boxed yourself in quite early because you ended the first chapter with the line, I have my first copy coffee with a killer. Mm-hmm. And so as a reader, we got two options, either one of the four is a killer or Freddie is an unreliable narrator. From your perspective as a writer, uh, what's it like to write a narrative where you've got to allude to a motive for multiple characters to keep the reader on their toes?
3: Well, you know, as I said, I'm a panther. So. Yeah. <laughs> writing that line in the first and and, and I'm panting and I write chronologically so I write from page 1 okay page one. yep i had no idea who who it was that did it with mm. that line and when i wrote that line i was aware that writing that line was going to box me in Yes. And I thought, do you really want to do this? And I, well, you know, this is it. You did. <laughs> this is it. This is what's happening. Yeah. Um, so I had to go with it. Um, I didn't really realise who the killer was until just before, basically, the reader realises or mm. the, has all the information to realise. Yeah. Um, I, I just, I just let it go. And it seems to me that in life, most people have a have uh, most people who are in an approximate situation to uh, a murder probably have some yep. kind of motive. Um, it's in there once you dig uh, this, dig hard enough. So basically, when I was writing, I was just sort of trying to think about you know, these four people are in the reading room. Mm why why might they want to um make the dead body dead um yeah. <laughs> and uh, and what could their motivations be and it all seems to sort of um unravel and fall out as a story um without without too much contrivance so i don't actually sit there and draw a map and see who was where and so on it just it just seemed to come out organically I put them all yep. in the same place when the scream happened and so yeah. I was challenged with I've said one of these three people killed her and yet they were all there looking at each other when, when the um, scream happened when the scream happened um and sometimes when you box yourself in like that when you give yourself what it <laughs> be a ludicrous challenge <laughs> that's when you become the most creative and the most inventive with your plots yeah um so it it worked it worked well it could have been a disaster <laughs> it could, have been, it could have been that I'd get to page 250 and think I don't know how to finish this <laughs> this doesn't work um uh, but it turned out well um in this case
2: I guess it's it's faith in your pants a process really isn't it and the faith yeah. that the story is there and it will come to you or you'll catch Absolutely. it eventually really?
3: yeah I, yeah. I always think of it, you know, not so much it doesn't feel to me like I'm creating. It feels to me like I'm discovering. Yeah, Story's always there. I'm just discovering it as opposed to I'm making You're
2: it. sort of a vessel for it to yeah. be shared
3: with everyone else.
2: Exactly. Exactly.
3: Yeah. yeah. Um, so yeah, it it feels very much that way to me. So I, I didn't throwing it throwing out these ludicrous challenges to myself um, in one way is daunting, but in another way, it just feels like this is the way it happened.
2: Yeah. Yeah. It feels natural, I guess, yeah. when you're writing it. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And so one thing that you, you touch on in the novel is um, sort of around where, where authors should disclose their character's race. And it's something that Leo brings up um, in pointing out that a character would be treated differently by the police depending on their race. Um, Hannah doesn't take that on board. But what are your thoughts around
3: it? How- well, look, I I don't ever describe race of mm. characters either, and you know a number of reasons. I I, I give you eye colour, hair colour, and that's yep. about it. Height, if it's important, but partly because when I read a book, I want to imagine the character. Yeah, I want you know I, I, that that's something that I like to do to imagine what they look like and who they are and, you know, whether I want them to be handsome or beautiful or not. Mm. You know, that's, that's to me part of the personal experience of reading a novel. So I don't tend to do that in my novels for that reason. Mm. Also because, you know, I, lately I, I've become aware that there is a default to white, that yes. if you don't say a character is black, people automatically assume they're white. Now you can deal with that in two Ways you can tell people that a character black, or mm. you can refuse to be bombarded, and um, and that's what I've I've followed. I, I refuse to uh, account for that default by. Yes determining what character, color my characters are and I put them through situations but one of the things that I've done both in this book and in crossing the lines is I hope I've made people think about their natural defaults there's nothing you know I don't I don't think that having a default to white is necessarily racist it's mm-hmm. a result of years of western literature making everything about white people it doesn't mean that you're racist I I default to white and I'm not um Hmm. and it's it's just the 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 result of years and years generations of reading western literature yeah if you are aware that you have the default then you can then it gives another layer to the story you can think about you know, if this character isn't white, does it change how I feel about them? Mm. Does it change how how realistic I think this story is? Does it change how lucky I think they are? Does it change how dangerous what they're doing is? And for me, that is a much more worthwhile conversation um, with the reader than just mm. the box by having a character of colour in your book.
2: Yeah, I mean, I'll certainly say you certainly got me thinking about it because um, when it happened, I was like, "Oh, yeah," and it was funny, and I don't, and I, I can't explain why, but I wasn't, I was imagining Freddie as as a black woman. Um, I was pitching, picturing, picturing um, the actress Ebony Vaughn's Oh, you know the big the big curly hair and you know her colorful clothes and I and when I thought about it, I was like I'm just associating the name Freddie like that's just what I imagined a Freddie would look like um a Winifred and Mm -hmm. I don't and it really when I read that I was like oh why did you think that because that was the only character who I think I was visually in you know visualizing the others I just sort of was sort of playing to me I wasn't really thinking about them um, but I think it's going to be a great conversation for the readers, especially you know if they people do this, this would be a great book group book. great yeah. discussion to have in a book group about that
3: yeah yeah exactly and 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 you know novels are not about telling readers what to think well i don't think so i think novels are about having conversations with readers yes and sometimes, sometimes having conversations with readers is not about you telling them how you feel it's about just asking them how they feel or what they think and that um that conversation between leo and and hannah about race was was me throwing it over to the reader and asking them what they think mm. Absolutely.
2: Well, as I said, it will be a great discussion point, I think, and get many readers like myself thinking about, oh, why did I think that? Yeah. 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 So what is next for you? Are, are you writing another book at the moment? Well, look, I have a, I have
3: another book that's ready to go that I should have, oh. finished. <laughs> I should have finished a couple of months ago. Uh, but the, the publicity for this book has just been so crazy. It's blown up in the US that I just haven't had time to do anything. But uh, <laughs> but do, um, you know, uh, uh, podcasts and interviews and so yep. on for the last couple of months. But that book was written before this one. Okay. Uh, but it was changed by the pandemic. So yep. the pandemic actually fundamentally changed how the narrative mm. worked out to make that narrative not, not you know, uh, it made the narrative a little bit uh, too fixed as a pre con, uh, there's COVID. Not yeah. Yeah. Uh, so not just the characters not just the dialogue the actual narrative so i just thought i i still really love those characters i really love what the novel is saying um and i see it i, I saw well you know it's not it's not a drag because the the actual pandemic and what happened and and the way people changed um and the pay, way people looked at things is actually mm-hmm. an opportunity to add more layers to that uh, uh to that novel, and you know I'm all about the layers yes, yes. I gab it <laughs> so i'm uh I'm ducking back into it and just sort of um, fixing it basically or, or yep. uh, adding those um actual layers of knowledge that we have gained mm. uh, after the pandemic. And then hopefully I'll have it sent off to my agents and publishers and so on uh, by next month. Uh, Excellent, um, that's exciting. And then yeah, uh, it, it is exciting. I, I you know, the, those the characters in that book I, I loved. Again, it's it's set in America, and but I have used expatriate Australians. Yep. Um, and the reason I do that is I. You know, I'm an Australian, so I, I understand the way Australians look at the world. Yes. I love Americans, but sometimes I don't quite get how they look at the world. <laughs> and uh, and so this way it allows me to write a book that's set in America that rings true. Yep. That uh, allows me to include American characters, uh, but to actually um, not try and... Um, appropriate, not appropriate is the wrong word, but to try and fabricate an, an American-ness or, uh, or an innate Americanness that I don't have. Yeah,
2: yeah. Um, and so we're a bunch of book lovers here at Book Matters. Um, I would love it if you could share with us one of your favourite reads from this year.
3: Um, I'm, 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 can I give you two? <laughs>
2: you can give me as many as you like. I will never say no to a book recommendation. <laughs> okay.
3: Marla Nunn, uh, When the Ground is Hard. It is, uh, technically speaking, a YA novel, but I read it and it's one of those novels that, like, To Kill a Mockingbird, that spans. It is beautiful. Marla is a writer's writer. She's Mm -hmm. um, one of the few writers when I read, I really wish I'd written that. I mean, quite often, I, I read lots of books that I love, but very, very few that I think, oh, gosh, I would just so love to have written that. I'd feel so, and and she's yeah. It's it's an amazing book set uh, set in South Africa, mm-hmm. uh, in, in a boarding school in South Africa. It um it is it is a really wonderful discussion, not only of race but the, but of youth and hope and friendship. Um, so I recommend that one. I think technically I might have read that last year instead of. <laughs> things are starting to blur a bit but I, yes I, I, always do. um the other one that oh, look there's lots I'd recommend the other one that I would do right at the moment because it's sitting on my desk and I'm looking at it uh so <laughs> I won't get the title wrong is uh, when we fall by efi clifford set around you know the the the, ca- the lead character is a barrister who goes back to her hometown and finds herself embroiled mm. uh, in a in a mystery when the rest of the town just doesn't want to know about it it's a little bit it's reminiscent of uh a sea change in the structure of you know someone from the city coming back yep um, and it's it's lovely Aoife is also a writer's writer she is um a brilliant master of prose and the story is wonderful and riveting um so i would recommend that and it it's only just come out too it's this year she, she isn't a household name i'd say because that happened mm. during covid and she uh, yeah. you know, should be the kind of writer we we're holding up for her international success yeah uh, but it happened at the very beginning of covid uh,
2: yeah yeah um,
3: so it got sucked into that vortex. Threw,
2: threw a lot of things out of whack. Over did
3: it did it did. <laughs> so yeah, I, I I think it's it's one of uh, one of those books that just make you feel better for having read it. It just mm. makes you. It's it's a little bit like you know, To Kill a Mockingbird had a huge influence on me. Yep. Um, and it's it's one of those books that you just want to file away mm. um, in your heart and your mind forever.
2: Well, you can't get, you can't read too many of those kinds of books, can you?
3: Absolutely.
0: No.
2: Um, so if our audience want to connect with you online, what's the best platform for them to do
3: that with you? I'm on Facebook and Instagram and Twitter and I respond to everyone. Uh, and so letters. You, yeah. Sometimes sometimes, <laughs> that, sometimes it takes me a while to find it. <laughs> yeah. But <laughs> I do respond to everyone. Yeah. Um, um, so, yeah, you can find me there. Uh, there. And if anyone wants to ask me or berate me about the book, that's fine too. <laughs> awesome.
2: that's well, thank you so much, Solari. It's been an absolute pleasure chatting with you today. The Woman in the Library is a masterpiece of fiction writing with plots that twist and bend and characters who jump off the pages. The Woman in the Library is wickedly enjoyable. The Woman in the Library is available at any case cutter near a library branch or to borrow as an ebook through our Borrow Box and Libby apps. Thanks again, Solari. I look forward to reading your past publications. I have crossing the lines on my desk right now and reading what else you bring out in the future. Oh, thank you. It's been a real pleasure, Courtney.
1: If you have ever wondered what being a surgeon in a busy hospital is all about, then my next guest is the person to talk to. Neela Janaki Ramanan is a reconstructive plastic surgeon who spends most of her time playing with power tools to fix hands and wrists while accidentally teaching, mentoring, writing, and fighting the patriarchy. She can also change a flat tyre and operate a barbecue. Neela joins me today on the podcast to talk about her debut novel, The Registrar, which has just been released. Welcome to Book Matters, Neela. Thank you for having me, Janine. How does it feel now to see your first novel out there on the bookshelves? It's quite exciting, I've got to say.
4: Are you ever tempted to rush into the store and say, hey, that's my book there? (laughs) I actually (laughs) stuck my head into readings the other day because there was another book I wanted to buy. And um, and as I was paying for it, I said very quietly to the saleswoman, "Also, that's my book over there." And she was so lovely. She's like, "Come sign a couple. This is great." Oh and yeah, so,
1: definitely. Signed books are like rock stars to readers, so we all love getting a signed copy of something. Absolutely. Now, firstly, can you give us some information about your background and what led you to become a surgeon?
4: Yeah, so I am surgeon now. When I was growing up, medicine was really quite far from my mind. Uh, I didn't have a lot of family members who were doctors. My grandfather was a a GP in rural India, um, and he did a little bit of surgery. So actually, the first operation I ever saw was someone having their tonsils out, and I was eight. And I think back to my eight-year-olds now, and I think, gosh, I'm not entirely sure what my family were thinking, but I was very (laughs) keen. That's the thing I would say. And then sort of years went by and I always enjoyed writing and I seriously considered a career in journalism but medicine kept calling to me and so I ended up in medical school and it wasn't an easy road I almost left almost every year I would get to the end of the year and think I'm gonna go do something else and then I I couldn't really think of anything else to do in part also I just once we got to the clinical year so in medical school you spend the first few years on a university campus learning theory and then the second half of your training you spend in hospitals. Once we got to the hospitals, what I realised is that I love talking to people, I love hearing people's stories and that is an insight that being a doctor really gives you because even though Mm. I operate, most of my days are actually spent in the consulting room where people tell me everything about themselves, their background, their story, where they've come from, where they want to go to. And I love that human connection.
1: And it just makes, it it, it brings the personality into it too, that you're seeing that person as a person and not just another case.
4: Yes, that's it.
1: Now, how long does it take, you know, from the time you start medical school to actually becoming a specialist? How long does that actually take?
4: So there's a few pathways into medical school. I started straight out of high school and I did a 6-year medical degree. So medical degrees can be postgraduate at 4 years or they can be straight out of high school at 5 or 6 years. And then you spend a year in the hospitals as what's called an intern, so you're provisionally registered, you're always under supervision, and then you can once you've done that intern year you are a doctor. And at that point, you can choose to specialise. So general practice is a specialty with its own training program. It's just done in the community rather than in hospitals. Um, Or you Mm -hmm. can become a hospital-based specialist. And that training can take an additional 10 to 12 years. Wow, it's a big commitment,
1: isn't it? Yeah. Now, reading your bio, it seems that you've done a lot of study as well as working overseas, and you never really stop learning. There's always new discoveries and techniques in the medical field. As you are a specialist, how on earth did you find time to write a novel as well as running your practice? Look,
4: I think we all do the things that are important to us, and the reason this novel was important to me was... People love medical drama. You know, every time there's a new TV show, ER, Grey's Anatomy, The Good Doctor, people flock to it. People love to see that insight into a profession that all of us will interact with at some point in our lives, whether we are healthcare workers or we have friends and family who are healthcare workers or or we are patients ourselves. And the thing that frustrated me was two things. Firstly, there is not a lot of literature about hospitals, lots of TV shows, movies, but not a lot of literature. And the Mm -hmm. second is what little there is, is always told by men from a male perspective. Whereas we're now at a point where 50% of doctors are women, a majority of nurses, a majority of allied healthcare workers, and at least 50% of our patients are women. And so I really like other aspects of literature, I suppose, where men have been telling the majority of stories for a long time, I thought, I really want people to understand what happens in healthcare from a female perspective. I really want to centre our experiences of providing care and receiving care. And I really wanted to tell an Australian story because the Australian health system is different to the American or the British health system and it has Hmm. peculiarities. And so for an Australian audience, actually, giving them a context to understand what's happening behind the screen, behind the closed door, when they interact with the health system, I thought had value.
1: Good on you. And look, I'm lucky enough to have already read your book, The Registrar, but for the
4: benefit of our listeners, can you please tell us what your book's all about? Yeah, of course. So a registrar in our health system is a specialist in training. And again, this can be in general practice or in a hospital-based specialty. The reason I I chose the registrar as a central character, my central character is a young woman named Emma Swan, was because I think it really epitomises the period of time when doctors are interacting really acutely with the health system, particularly in our hospitals, our registrars are the people who... Uh, They're the backbone, they keep everything going. And it is also one of the hardest periods of time for a doctor because you have increasing responsibility while you are training, but you also have all of those pressures of training, the long hours, the need to sit exams and things like that. So in my novel, Emma is a first year registrar. Uh, She is a surgical registrar specialising in orthopaedic surgery. And And I chose a surgical specialty for her because it's what I knew I could write with the most authenticity but a lot of the issues that Emma experiences in the hospitals would be experienced by registrars even not involved in surgery right and so as she goes through the year she at a new hospital which is a very prestigious teaching hospital where her father was once very senior she has a number of adventures and misadventures finds friends finds enemies has lots of problems to solve And the real question is that stress and everything builds up as that year goes on is will she and all of her friends, will they survive?
1: Correct. And wow, I always thought that doctors worked long hours, but this book was an absolute eye-opener into how grueling it must be to work in a hospital. And it almost read as semi-autobiographical. So I'm sure you drew on some of your own experiences while you were writing it.
4: Yeah, I was very keen to make it as realistic as possible. I I mean, Truth is stranger than fiction, so then not a lot of embellishment was required. <laughs> it's definitely not a memoir and it's not my story. Lots of stories that I have seen, that I have heard, um, with respect, of course, to the patients I have treated and the colleagues that I have worked with and protecting their confidentiality as well. Of course, of course. Now, Emma came
1: from a family of doctors because her brother and her sister-in-law and her father were all doctors. Is this a common thing in the medical field?
4: Yeah, it's incredibly common. It is, you know, a little bit of a mafia, I suppose. The reason that I cast Emma within a medical family is because I wanted her to have as many advantages as she possibly could. I didn't mm. want this to be a story of this only happens to certain kinds of people. It only happens if you're a doctor with a disability or a doctor who is an immigrant or a doctor who was trained overseas. I wanted it to be her to be as establishment within the medical profession as possible and then still have the scenarios that play out because that does actually happen.
1: Yeah and look I suppose with the hours that doctors must put in there's not much of an opportunity to meet people outside the medical profession either.
4: Yes absolutely and straight through from medical school it is a degree that doesn't offer a lot of double degrees so you're not in class with other students so you especially for those students who've started from high school you go into it and you are with your medical cohort and that cohort will follow you through for the next six years. And so they are the people who become your boyfriends, your girlfriends, your partners, your social group. Well,
1: I suppose she um, she was different because her husband was actually a lawyer, wasn't he? Yes, yes that's right. And, but, I mean, two people with very high-powered jobs, I mean, it's a matter of survival, isn't it? Yeah, it is. Look, I noted the reference um, with a bit of a chuckle to serving, uh, surviving on chips and chocolate out of the vending machine as there wasn't enough time to eat properly at work. And, I mean, doctors are always the ones that say you must eat healthy, but they're probably the worst people and it's a matter of convenience and time. They haven't got time to... To actually sit down and have a proper nutritious meal
4: one of the great things that great and terrible things that happened in our um, award a number of years ago was they actually took out a lunch break because it was unpaid and no one was getting it and so finally nice. the union said well if you're not going to give doctors their lunch break well let's just pay them to keep working through lunch and you know at least it's nice that we're not working unpaid but it does continue to perpetuate that (laughs) behavior that we all just work all day And look, it was
1: interesting in the book, too, when Emma was flying to a medical conference and sat next to an airline pilot Mm -hmm. where she drew comparisons to a pilot being responsible for hundreds of lives hurtling through the skies in a tin box compared to a surgeon losing a patient on the operating table. And he remarked that with her level of fatigue that she had at the time, he as a pilot would not be allowed to fly, yet a doctor just pushes through. And I'll just quote something that um, you wrote in there where he said... Planes don't crash because the plane failed, but because people did. And you have to constantly try to improve systems so people can't fail. As a start, you have to start to speak up. That is a really powerful statement and obviously applies to the medical field as well, with the pressure on doctors and nurses to have to just push through. Though mistakes, unfortunately, do happen. Do you believe things are getting better for the medical profession in this regard?
4: I think we are better at safety systems. Uh, authors like Atul Gawande have written quite a lot about this. So we have better immediate checks and balances than we did, say, 10, 20, 30 years ago. Yeah. So, you know, what we would call a critical instant like someone having surgery on the wrong limb. Almost right. never happens before, and look, it was uncommon previously, but it did happen. Whereas now it's much less common. Yes, there are some safety systems in place, but the fundamental underlying thing that we're not addressing is the health, well-being, opportunity for rest, opportunity for optimum performance of healthcare workers themselves. Even and to get a
1: lunch break would help.
4: Absolutely, and particularly the last couple of years in the pandemic, it has really, I think, brought to the front what we ask of healthcare workers, the nurses that are doing double, triple shifts uh, during various waves of infection, the doctors who are getting sent from one hospital to a different hospital. Things like nursing ratios, which are supposed to be there for safety, get thrown out of the window uh, as soon as things get really busy because... You, the system has to make a difference are you going to provide adequate care to lots of people you know provide really good care to some people and none to others and this is why I like being a frontline clinician who treats the patient in front of me because if I were an administrator or a bureaucrat who I have a lot of sympathy for those mm-hmm. are the kinds of conversations and questions that they are having And even though I do lampoon administrators a little bit in my novel, um, I do have a degree of sympathy for them.
1: And look, even though Emma was working primarily on the orthopedic ward, she gets thrown in at the deep end with an emergency obstetrics patient. Mm. How do doctors cope with this while they are training? I mean, I know you have to have time in every department of the hospital, but if you're already training to be a specialist in another field, to have to be thrown in, it must be pretty scary for the doctor at the time.
4: Mm. And fortunately, that doesn't happen too often in large metropolitan hospitals because there is typically someone that you can call who is better qualified than you to address that problem. But it is absolutely something that happens in rural and regional areas where yes. often junior doctors are sent out to a country hospital to run the entire hospital. So they would staff the emergency department. They would also be seeing patients on the ward. They would be treating anything that comes in through the door. And it is something that particularly rural and regional general practitioners are required to do. And their skill set is just remarkable.
1: It would be. And that's why they're always calling out for more doctors to go and work in rural areas, aren't yep. they?
4: Yeah. Now, the
1: bullying and misogyny that was evident was quite disturbing. Um, It seemed that the higher up the proverbial food chain you were in the medical profession, the more arrogant you became, especially towards your junior associates. It's almost like they'd forgotten that they were young doctors once. Is that common in the real world?
4: Look, Janine, I've sat in a bullying and harassment training session where a senior surgeon genuinely asked the presenter how they expected junior doctors to learn to perform under pressure if they weren't bullied. So there is this lack of appreciation and this disconnect among some people in the profession that learning to treat a patient under pressure comes from things that can be positive like simulation and mm. being supported in those high-pressure environments when you're younger so that you can run those scenarios yourself as you become more senior. But that is complicated, dedicated teaching. And teaching is not something that doctors are explicitly taught. And so Mm -hmm. we teach as we have been taught. And so if there is a culture that goes back 100 years or more of teaching by embarrassment by humiliation by bullying then that is how people continue to teach oh,
1: For- a bit sad.
4: fortunately I do think that is changing I think there's much more awareness of that and there's a lot more training around that
1: Now, Emma was very ambitious, but she seemed to have to work harder than her male peers, despite being just as qualified and knowledgeable. Is this something that you found when you were training? And do you think the situation has improved over the years or is there still a long way to go?
4: I think unconscious bias runs deep in a lot of professions. I remember being told by a senior surgeon uh, when I was relatively young that I would always have to work harder because I couldn't be a good bloke because I wasn't a bloke oh. and that oh. the men always started with their cup full. And if they didn't do things that were right, then that cup would empty. But women always started with their cup empty and had to fill it and prove that they were had capacity before any mistakes would be tolerated and and I think you know and again that that is in medicine but I do think that all professions have this issue Mm -hmm. as well when I was young and people would say things like oh but you know surgery is very male dominated it's not family friendly you know at the time I thought male dominated means there's a lot of guys around and that's okay I I can get along with men Um, Mm -hmm. and not family friendly meant Oh, look, the hours are a bit long. But what I've come to learn is that what that is, is code. Not for there are a lot of men, but there are a particular kind of man, a particular kind of alpha man, and an expectation of a particular kind of behaviour. And what they mean when it's not family friendly is that they want, there is an expectation that your life outside of work, whether that be your caring responsibilities to parents or children or others in your life, should be invisible. So I think that that is ultimately the challenge that medicine and and other professions face is how do you give women in and and even men who don't fit that very clean alpha male stereotype, how do you put them on a level playing field?
1: And look, with all the years of study, it seems that it is a survival of the fittest. Is there still a high dropout rate with doctors at, at that stage of training or do they just push through?
4: medicine is interesting because there is no there's no middle management there's no capacity to pause your career at that registrar level so you are either what's called a career medical officer and so you're doing paperwork on wards in various hospitals or you are a specialist and whether again whether that is a general practitioner or a hospital specialist and so unless you uh, happy to be a career medical officer, which some people are, but that's mm-hmm. a minority, uh, or you leave medicine and step sideways, um, and there are various corporate opportunities, board opportunities, um, public health department opportunities, mm. then you are locked into having to finish a training program. Otherwise, mm. there isn't really work for you. And yep. so people, are, they just have to push through. And look, what's been the reaction
1: from some of your peers that have already read your book? Uh,
4: it has been nothing but supportive. The I think a lot of people do recognise that there are issues within our health system that need to be addressed. And I think fiction is a really non-confronting way for the health system, the medical profession, To talk about that because I haven't written about anyone even though lots of people ask me am I in your book I'm like no 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 (laughs) don't worry you're not in my book it it would be really
1: good if the people higher up the food chain also read your book and maybe it it might be a little
4: bit of a wake-up call to
1: think oh okay you know so you can only hope
4: yeah, and I think, you know, the, the other beautiful thing about fiction is, I mean, we all know the statistics, you know, how long people work and, you know, the poor outcomes that happen at hospitals sometimes. But I think with storytelling, you can actually explore the impact of that on people mm. and actually mm. make it personal rather than a statistic or a number.
1: Now, when you're not working or writing, what sort of books do you like reading apart from medical journals and what are you reading (laughs) at the
4: moment? (laughs) Um, I will read most things, to be honest. I read, if I'm honest, literary fiction because I should and it's important. Um, I really enjoy commercial fiction as well. The last book that I finished was, I'm terrible with long titles, Uh, You Make a fool of Death with Your Beauty. By Fy okay. Amazi, um, which was an amazing story of a uh, African American woman who has lost her partner and is grieving, and how she finds love again, but in a kind of vexed kind of way. Um, I okay, a beautiful an story.
1: And are you planning on writing another novel, or do you have one in progress?
4: Uh, I have. Kind of two in progress, uh, to Ooh, be honest, okay. um, there's one that I have started, which is a little bit more serious, that I've come to realize probably just needs a bit more thinking time. Massaging. Yeah, yes. it's a, just a bit trickier, but the other, what I found really interesting with this book is how my publisher has marketed it more at the psychological thriller end of the genre. And, mm-hmm. um, and I thought maybe I I'll just lean into that and write a murder mystery.
1: Oh oh well we'll look forward to that. What was your road to publication? How did you get your book deal?
4: Yeah so I was very fortunate that uh, the the unpublished manuscript was short shortlisted for a Victorian Premier's Literary Award Um, so I knew that at the end of 2020 and once that was announced there was a huge amount of interest from various literary agents and publishers Uh, I signed with Melanie Ostell, who is my agent, and she's wonderful. Um, And she is renowned for being involved in editorial um, assistance as well. So she basically made me rewrite it before we sent it off to publishers, (laughs) uh, which was fantastic. And then uh, Alan and Unwin picked it up about 12 months ago and then we went through another editing process.
1: Well, I must say it is very different to what is out there on the shelf at the moment. And I read a lot of books and it was just, it was really refreshing to read something that was quite outside, you know, the square and something quite different. And I am a fan of, am as you said before, I watch Grey's Anatomy, I watch Station 19, I watch all those medical shows and they are gripping. And yes, your book was gripping. So I totally agree with down the you know psychological thriller route and look forward to see what comes for your next one. Thank you. Now, Neela's novel, The Registrar, is available to borrow from the library in paperback form. And if you like to read a compelling, fast-paced novel, then this is the book for you. I can't thank you enough for chatting to me today on Book Matters, Neela. I wish you every success with The Registrar. Thank you so much for having me. Now, let's hear what our library staff have been reading.
5: Hi, this is Michelle from Regional Support and this month I'm reviewing Autopsy from Patricia Cornwall. Patricia Cornwall is a big writer of forensic titles and this latest one sees her um, forensic pathologist Case Capetta, and her family returning to Virginia, where she takes on the role again as Chief Medical Examiner. While she's still settling in, she is navigating both the mess left by the previous medical um, examiner as well as... Dealing with new cases and a surprise call to the White House. As always, Patricia Cornwall delivers a good story with interesting dynamics between the characters as well as the intrigue of all the forensic evidence. I thought the White House storyline was a little far-fetched, but I was content to go along for the ride. It was a good read that kept me engaged, although the ending was a bit too quick and all the loose ends tied up a bit too nicely with little explanation. Still, all in all, a good read. Autopsy is available in print, in large print... And as an e-book from Box.
6: Hello my name is Raylene, I work at Bunjil Place and Endeavour Hills Libraries. I have been reading a book called When Things Are Alive They Hum which is written by Hannah Bent and what a glorious read it has been. This is a sad but at the same time divinely uplifting original story about the celebration of life and the special love shared between two sisters, Marlowe and Harper. The author says about this book, I wrote this story as a love letter to my sister who has Down syndrome. And now I know we shouldn't judge a book by its cover, but this one has a beautiful cover, which just makes it the perfect package in my opinion. When Things Are Alive They Hum is available from Casey Cardinia Libraries in formats, including book, audio on play away and CD, and ebook book from BorrowBox and Libby. I'm Tracy from Bunjil Place Library
7: and I'm reviewing The Island by Adrian McKinty. Wow, what a cracker! As I was reading this, I was thinking of how it was like an Aussie version of Deliverance, so I wasn't surprised to find in the acknowledgements that McKinty had used this as his inspiration. I don't want to give away the plot, but I was hearing those twanging banjos as I was reading this in a nutshell an american family find themselves on a small island off the mornington peninsula and due to an unfortunate accident find themselves being hunted by the family that lives there the island is easy to read although as victorian i was mildly uncomfortable i mean yikes is this family for real I love books with an Aussie flavour and this one wasn't too ochreish, so I certainly think it will have appeal both here and overseas. The characters and story were well written and I could easily see this as a movie. This was my first time reading a book from McKinty but I'm going to seek out his earlier works as I really enjoyed his writing style. This book is due for release on May 24th and will be available to borrow in our catalogue. Do yourself a favour when it comes out and have a read of The Island by Adrian McKinty. It was a good read, thank you.
8: Hi, my name is Camilla from the Endeavour Hills branch and I recently read The Great Alone by Kristen Hanna. The story follows a teenage girl called Lenny who lives with her tight-knit family in Seattle. It isn't long though before the reader realises that Lenny's family is never far from tipping point. Lenny's father, Earned, has been left psychologically broken after returning from the Vietnam War, leaving Lenny and her mother living in fear of Ern's explosions, an opportunity to relocate to a remote Alaskan town seems like it could provide a blank slate. Aren't he sure that the wilderness will calm his internal turmoil? Little do they know how much work awaits them to make the Alaskan Shack livable, as well as to become self-sufficient. The inhabitants of this remote area must plan and prepare for winter all year before the 18 hours of darkness each day takes over, which can often send people over the edge. The beautiful, harsh wilderness, as well as Lenny's family struggles, kept me captivated from start to finish. With an unexpected ending. You can find this book on shelf at our libraries.
0: Sean Williams has written a story that crackles with teenage frustration, passion, and overwhelming hope. Impossible Music follows Simon, a young Adelaide muso who desires to study music theory but is suddenly rendered deaf after having a stroke. Frustrated by the cards he has dealt, Simon shuns Auslan, the deaf community. And professional support in favor of going it alone sean williams is not deaf and this isn't an own voices story but his depiction of a teenager facing dramatic life change is done in a way that feels genuine you don't always see the support of others as a lifeline it can be restricting and frustrating to need to ask others for help we often actively resist change in our teen years and simon does all this and it might resonate with some and infuriate other readers, particularly if you've been in that position before or you know someone going through a similar situation. So word of warning, this wasn't a fun read, but it's dealing with some really serious content and really serious topics. And for that reason, I'd still recommend it. The story shines some light on the idea that for many, it can be hard to accept support and hard to see yourself as part of a community or a group that you might not be born into or might not have previously aligned with. In this story, it's the deaf community. Simon feels resistant to learning Auslan. Instead, he spends a lot of his time texting and typing back and forth with girlfriends, family, friends, which frustrates many who would rather he learn to talk faster with his hands. But having been born with hearing and having built up a reputation and a passion as a musician, Simon doesn't necessarily feel like he belongs in the deaf community because he had only recently acquired his um, deafness. He speaks without a lisp He can play music, his brain knows what sounds are and what the world around him sounds like, he just can't hear it anymore. He's afraid that if he embraces the deaf language, he would not be accepted by other deaf people and he would be leaving his hearing days behind him. There's a message in this story that nothing should stop your dreams. And if you have the heart, the passion, and the determination to see them through, they can still happen. And in particular, it demonstrates that disability is not the end of opportunity. And what a more remarkable example of that than Simon applying for a music theory course after losing his hearing. There are some characters in this story who do do remarkable things that also have hearing loss. And that made this story quite unique. It's rare to have one, let alone several protagonists with disabilities um, be portrayed in this story as more than just their disability. There are some heavy topics here about coping under pressure, suicide, and seeking professional help for mental health. Um, And I felt it wasn't really needed to add all of those things into the story, but they were there and the reference to support services is something that you might want to go looking for if you're going to pick this one up. Overall, it's great to see more stories where protagonists have disabilities and they're front and centre. Invisible Music is a really good example of a story that will start a conversation and maybe inspire a few people too. Uh, If you'd like to get your hands on Impossible Music, it is also available as an audiobook on Belinda and it is available as a hardcover book in the library catalogue.
1: If you enjoy listening to Book Matters, we would love you to give us a rating at your favourite podcast provider. That way other book lovers will be able to find us too. For more details on the books mentioned in this podcast, as well as information from the library, head to www.cclc.vic.gov.au or visit our new Facebook group, In a Nook with a Book, where you can let us know what you've been reading. Until next time, this has been Janine and you've been listening to Book Matters, a CCLC podcast for people who like to read made by people who love reading. Goodbye.